Father, in the body of Christ, we have the gifts of the Spirit. We have the, the joy that we know from knowing you and from being counted among the family of God. And in this body, Father, we have men and women who you've called because in your wisdom, you saw fit to bring together just those who have gathered because it suited your purposes. It achieved the end that you see in the gathering of the body. And let us never diminish it, Father. Let us never take it for granted. I thank you for this building. I thank you for the leaders. I thank you for the parents who are raising godly children. I thank you for the volunteers, the women who oversee in, in many areas the children and the education of our children, the men, Father, who work to maintain the building, to provide for the, the basic administration of the church, for the musicians who lend their talents so that we may worship in music and in song. We thank you, Father, for the teaching, for those who lead our home groups, for those who work in a hundred ways that many of us have never seen or even made note of. And we thank, thank you, Father, that you've called all of these men and women in all the various ways they work. Because in the sum total of that work, you are building us up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You're molding us, Father. You're taking the clay that you made and you are turning it into a vessel fit for glory, one that will know you into eternity and glorify you forever. Give us eyes, Father, to see that plan, to see the eternal work of the Spirit, even as he has begun it now in these days as we await our true glorification. Let us see it in advance of it happening. Let us live according to what we know will be. Let us reflect Christ. And I say let us, Father, because I know that you empower and you guide and you make possible, but you call us to walk with you and to be obedient and to be responsive to your word. And I ask that you would cause us to do so by giving us a heart with courage and a mind that is attentive and knowledgeable and a will, Father, that is yielding. We pray these things because we know that you intend to do the good work you had planned from the foundations of the earth. And we just want to be a part of it, Father. We don't want to miss it. Don't let us miss it. Let your word this morning further that goal. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you'll be happy to hear that we now enter the final stage of the book of Genesis. The story of Jacob is coming to an end, and his is the final story. So this is the final section of the final story of the book that never ends in this church. This section brings his story to close. This is how Jacob enters Egypt and ends his life there, and then the resolution of promises to his sons. He and his family, as we know, are going to ride out the rest of the famine that still must take place while they live in security in Egypt, and then they're going to live there for many years beyond the end of the famine. They were invited into the land by Pharaoh, as we saw last week. But we also noted that Joseph has a plan for where they're going to live when they enter the land, because Joseph knows the purpose of their gathering together in Egypt is so that they may incubate, that they as a nation may grow safely within the confines of another nation, awaiting the day God will fulfill his promise to them to return them and give them the land that he said to Abraham. So they have to live in a place called Goshen. And Joseph has assigned this place to them because it's fertile, it's good for growing, it's great farmland, but it also keeps the nation of Israel separated geographically from the rest of Egypt, up in a little backwater area of the nation, this corner called Goshen. 
And Joseph's doing all of this because he understands the Lord's purposes, as I said, that they must not be tempted to join together with the people of Egypt in the way that they were doing among the people in Canaan. They must be a separate nation, a nation that has no ties to another nation. And so he has determined that his father's family will live here. But Joseph's plan goes a lot deeper than just separating the people of Israel from the people of Egypt physically. He's also working to devise a couple of additional details here that will help his people stay apart from the nation of Egypt. It's not enough that they're physically separated. He wants it to be such that the people of Egypt don't even want to be associated with the people of Israel. So the first thing you're going to see today is Joseph working to make sure that Pharaoh agrees with his plan, because if Pharaoh doesn't agree with it, it's not going to happen. And then secondly, he wants to create an impression in the mind of Pharaoh and all his people that the Israelites are better left alone, that there is no reason to associate with them. Joseph has the plan to do this. Look at chapter 46. We'll finish chapter 46 and go into 47. They really work together in that respect. So we'll start in chapter 46, verse 28. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. So the family departs, Jacob departs from Canaan. And you notice it says that he assigns Judah to lead the family into Egypt. That Judah would, it says, go before him to Joseph to lead them to where Joseph is. So Judah is actually the second tribe to enter Egypt, where Joseph is the first who entered many years earlier. But now, as all of Israel is entering together, it is Judah to lead them. So you have Joseph in the land, and as the new family, as the full family enters after him, the first of the tribe that will step into the land of Egypt will be Judah, followed immediately, of course, by all that comes after him. Now, you know that Jacob has appreciated Judah as the emerging leader in the family. That's why we see him in this role. He is now the first among his brothers. We know from previous weeks that he is the seed promise holder in the family of Jacob. It it will be through Judah that the Messiah will eventually come and reign over Israel. And for those reasons, Jacob's decision to put Judah in the lead creates a remarkable prophetic picture of Christ It's one that's so remarkable that even the Jewish rabbis recognized it and spoke of it in the Midrash, in the Jewish commentary on their own scriptures. In the Jewish Midrash, which, as I said, is a rabbinical commentary, not inspired, just commentary on the Old Testament, the rabbis look at verse 28 and they notice something. They say that Joseph will receive the kingdom before Judah. And what they meant by that was something particularly Jewish, They meant that there would be a suffering, dying Messiah who is pictured by Joseph, who will come to Israel first. And then that would be followed at some later point by a second coming, by a second Messiah who would reign and rule over Israel. And he is pictured by Judah. And so the rabbis see a picture here of the truth as they understood it. Of two messiahs coming for Israel, one who suffers and dies, and a second who comes to reign. 
Now, the rabbis studying the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah had made a fundamental mistake, as you can tell by that interpretation. And the fundamental mistake that they made was in thinking that there would be two messiahs. That there would be one who dies for the sins of the Jewish people, and that dying messiah would have to be mistreated and killed. And the rabbis understood that Joseph, in the story of Joseph, pictures that dying, suffering messiah. And we've brought that picture out in here as well. We've seen that ourselves, because, in fact, Joseph is a picture of Messiah. Joseph had the birthright over his brothers, yet his brothers rejected him and mistreated him, just as Jesus has the birthright over the nation of Israel, but they rejected him. When they did so, they left Joseph for dead, thinking him dead, just as the nation of Israel thought that they put Jesus in the grave. And then, as he says here, Joseph came into Egypt first. Now, that picture is Messiah going into the world. Remember, Egypt is classically a picture of the world, the Gentile world. And sure enough, when Jesus came for his brothers, but yet was rejected, mistreated and killed, he then goes, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, to the world. So Joseph pictures the dying, suffering Messiah going to the world first. But the rabbis also understood that the tribe of Judah held the seed promise. And so they saw Judah as the picture of how eventually the seed would bring a king to reign, the lion of Judah, to rule and reign over Israel in glory. And they see in verse 28 here the principle of one first followed by the next. And that became the basis for their theology that there would be two messiahs to look for, one coming and then another coming. Even in Jesus' first coming on earth, the rabbis were still thinking this and looking for this very pattern. They were looking for two different messiahs who would come in succession, each of them fulfilling their respective pictures, one Joseph, one Judah. They called that first messiah by a specific title. They called him the prophet. Now, why do you think they called the dying, suffering messiah prophet? Well, it was because they noticed that prophets usually got mistreated and killed. So they said the first dying, suffering Messiah will be the prophet. They also use that term because Moses in the Torah refers to one who would come like him in a later day, a prophet who would be sent to Israel. And so they connect those who they said, that's the one that Moses is talking about. And it was Moses was talking about Christ. The second Messiah they called the anointed one, which is what Messiah means. Or in Greek, the word is Christ. So there would be the prophet, the one who fulfills Joseph. And then there would be the Christ, the one who fulfills Judah. You can see this thinking so clearly in the Gospels at one point in John's Gospel, because the Jewish leaders confront not Jesus, but John the Baptist. And when they come to John the Baptist, they want to know, who are you? Who do you say that you are? And they start quizzing him. Now, listen to what they ask him. John chapter one, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, well, are you the prophet? And he said, no. Do you see their thinking? He says, I'm not the Christ. And they go, okay, he's not the Judah guy. Let's see, Malachi said that Elijah would come back. Are you him? He goes, no. Huh, okay, you're not Elijah. That only leaves the prophet, the suffering, dying Messiah. Are you the suffering, dying Messiah? Heavens, no. Well, I guess you're none of them then. You're nobody we need to know. 
except that there was another prophecy of the one who would come into the wilderness to make a straight path for the one who would then be the Messiah. So obviously today, with the benefit of Scripture complete, and of course the Holy Spirit in us teaching us the truth of what it means, we now see things in a way that they did not. We see clearly that it was not that there were two messiahs, but that there was one messiah with two comings. And that in his first coming, he ministers in the fashion of Joseph, in that suffering, dying, the one who must go before his brothers to make a way possible for them to follow. But then when that day comes for the nation of Israel to enter into the glory of their Messiah, they will be led again, but they will be led by Jesus coming in his glorified form to rule and reign in the way of Judah, the line of Judah. So the first coming fulfilled Joseph, the second fulfills Judah. And so even as Jacob's family now enters into the nation of Egypt, they create in this fashion a picture of the nation of Israel following after their king at his second coming. Imagine the train, imagine the, the caravan, Judah marching in the lead with the rest of Israel, all of Israel, literally the entire family of Israel is in this procession, all Israel following their leader, Judah, into Egypt, into the world. And that is exactly as the way we've studied here in the past, exactly the way Scripture says Israel in the last day will be saved and will follow their king into the kingdom. And in this case, the world is represented by Egypt. And I want you to consider why they come into this world. They come to subdue the world and receive the best that it has to offer. I don't want to spoil any, any endings for people who have joined us in the Exodus study, but I've got to tell you, they don't spend forever in Egypt. They do get out. And when they leave, they leave, we're told, with the best of what Egypt has to offer. It literally says they plundered Egypt. Now, they didn't do it through force. But rather, the people of Egypt gladly gave up their possessions to encourage Israel to leave. So even though the nation enters a period of suffering for a time, they eventually leave conquerors, having plundered Egypt. And that itself reflects what God is going to do in the nation of Israel one day, setting them as the chief nation on the earth, above all others. So back to our story, Joseph takes... His chariot, we're told, after he knows that the family has come into the land, and he rides up from the capital of Memphis in Egypt to meet his father, and he arrives up in Goshen. Now, Goshen, as I've already said, is located off in the corner, actually in the northwestern part of the land of Egypt. So as the family enters the land from the north, they get to Goshen first, and rather than expecting them to drive the rest of the way down into the heart of Egypt, Joseph gets on his chariot and rides up to meet them and stops them in Goshen. And that's intentional. This is where he wants them to stay. He does not want them to move further down into the land and assimilate in any way within the culture. So he stops them in that area. Now, what follows next is not covered in any great detail, but I think it's probably one of the most powerful moments in all of Scripture. If you think about it, if you can put your put yourself in the moment after 22 years, father and son are reunited. It's the first time they set eyes on each other in 22 years. Both fought or presumed the other was dead. And Joseph, we're told, falls on his father's neck. They embrace. And then it says they cry together for a long time. Yeah, I don't know what you think a long time is, but my guess is if the scripture goes out of its way to say it's a long time, it was probably a very long time. And you have to think about what was going on around them. Because the air had to be thick with emotion. Because you not only have them, but you have the brothers. Right? The brothers standing around watching this scene. Knowing how they contributed to it. And by contribute, I mean it's their fault, right? So 
They're standing around watching this reunion and considering their own role in, in the very fact that it had to happen in this way. And you can just imagine the looks on their faces, the feelings in their heart, um, seeing all of this transpire. It, it must have been a remarkable moment. I only wish we could see it. And maybe one day we'll have a better appreciation for it. In that moment, Jacob tells Joseph, I can now die in peace because I've seen your face. I now know that you're alive. Jacob's 130 years old at this point, and though I'm sure he may feel like he's near death, he's speaking in hyperbola because he actually lives another 17 years after this moment while in Egypt. That's quite a bit of time. And therefore, you have to interpret what he's saying in less of a literal way, more as an expression of thankfulness, happiness. I'm so happy I could die. That sense is the meaning here. And now Joseph turns to his father and explains to his father, here's what's happening, Dad. Now that you're here, let me tell you what the plan is. And that's 30, chapter 46, verse 31, reading all the way into chapter 47, verse 6. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds. For they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For even or for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Well, then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And so they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Well, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at their disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. There's something funny about the way he says that. It's kind of like a backhanded compliment. And if any of your brothers are worth anything, could you please have them watch over my flock? Joseph's plan is to leave his family in Goshen. We know that, right? Because of the need to be separate, and that's the best place to keep them. So the plan is pretty simple. Go to Pharaoh, tell him you're here, tell him you've come with your flocks, tell him you're ready to settle, but make sure you tell them you are sheep herders. You've always been sheep herders, you'll always be sheep herders, you really know nothing but sheep herding. If you're there, you're there to herd sheep. Make sure that is clear. And when they hear this, when he says, what is your occupation, and you give him the answer... What that will do is it will cause him to loathe you. I can almost see the fathers now. Let, let me walk through this again. You want me to be loathed by Pharaoh, right? Yeah, Egyptians were shepherdphobic. That's what we'd say today, shepherdphobic. They literally, it says, loathed sheep herders. So the goal here is to encourage the loathing. And this is just a cultural thing. There's something about sheep herding. The Egyptians just saw were beneath them, and they wanted nothing to do with them, with the sheep, with the people who cared for the sheep, with anything to do with them. Well, that works into the hands of Joseph and the nation of Israel, obviously. Joseph's plan is to gently lead Pharaoh to this understanding so that then the natural result will play out. Pharaoh will say, well, sheep herders, you say. All right, well, you can have Goshen. 
Well, we were thinking Goshen too. That's perfect. So they lead him there. What you're watching in this is God at work in a way that's more profound than I think maybe at first sight here. God is working to keep his people separate. That part we understand. But that principle is still at work today. This is nothing new for God, and it's certainly not something God has stopped doing. God has always called for his people to remain unstained by the world, to remain distinct, to remain unique among all mankind. Now, in this day, that was a command to the nation of Israel, and it perpetuates in their history. But as the church was formed after Christ's first coming, that same uh, command was transferred to the church. We are also to be called out people like the nation of Israel was called out. I am not saying we are Israel, but I'm saying the same standard applies to God's people. We are to forever remain or maintain, I should say, maintain a degree of separation from the world because it suits God's purposes. And the, the quintessential text on that is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he writes this, verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul says then, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, what Paul teaches the Corinthian church, which he teaches us as well, is simply that by virtue of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of each believer, you become part of the temple of God, the body of Christ, because of that indwelling. And as such, as the temple of God, as God's people, we are called to observe a certain degree of separation from the world, to not be stained by them. The law for the nation of Israel created that separation. They were given dietary restrictions and sacrificial system and the priesthood and cleanliness and uncleanliness restrictions that all work together to create distinction, to make them different. To make them stand apart. And the idea was simple. If God is among us, then it becomes our duty to abstain from things that are contrary to God's perfection and to his holiness. Because to do otherwise would mean to drag God's spirit, the Lord's spirit, into unclean experiences by virtue of our own sin. I want you to think about it like taking the Holy Spirit by the arm and saying, hey, I want to go do this sinful thing. Why don't you come along and enjoy it with me? You're staining God by your willingness or by our willingness to engage in things that he would not otherwise, by his perfect nature or holiness, have anything to do with. That's why he says, come out and be separate from those things with me. Christians can take Paul's commandment out of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, and we can run too far with it. You can take it so far that you miss God's purpose in it. God is not asking us to remove ourselves from the world altogether. That would be equivalent to Israel not even going into Egypt. Saying to God, you know what, I prefer to stay up here in Canaan where there's no chance at all I'll even interact with an Egyptian. That's not what God's asking. Notice Jacob's family did enter Egypt, and that was God's intent, as we've already studied. They came into Egypt, and yet... Even though they did that, they were commanded to remain separate from the people. That is the essence of our command as Christians. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Not to be out of the world so that you're not of the world, but to be in it, but not of it. That's the challenge. Jesus prayed for exactly that result to the Father in the famous prayer in John 17. And in one section, he says this, John 17, 14. Speaking to the Father, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. So Christ acknowledged in that simple moment that his disciples were not of the world because our faith makes us citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Just as Israel was not Egypt, we are not the world. Yet, for a time, Christ's disciples remain in the world. Why are you still alive on this earth if you're saved? Because after all, to die is to be with Christ and to eventually receive our glorified body. Why waste time waiting for that? Just take me home. It would seem to make sense unless there's some good purpose in us remaining on this earth for a time. That's the essence of Jesus' statement. He says, I'm sending them into the world just like you sent me into the world. Why did Jesus get sent into the world? To bring light? To bring the truth? To bring salt in a world that needed it? Well, he says we're sent for the same reason he was sent. Well, then those same purposes attach to us. Which is why Jesus clarifies when he prays to the Father, I didn't want you to take them out of the world, because if you did that, the whole mission fails. Leave them in the world, just don't let the enemy take hold of them. Don't let their usefulness be neutralized by the work of the enemy. So, we don't strive to separate ourselves from the world entirely, because if we did that, we couldn't impact it. So, what does it look like when we are in the world, but not of the world? What does that actually look like? Well, first, you have to associate with those who need to hear the truth. That means spending time with sinners, as Jesus would call them. You have to have unbelieving neighbors. You have to have unbelieving associates at work, unbelieving friends. If you don't, how are you impacting the world? You have to visit places unbelievers go. You have to work and play and gather and even go to school with people who don't know the Lord or you'll never impact them for the Lord. And I'm not saying God can't reach them without you. We know better. I'm saying you won't be involved. And why are you still on the earth? Oh, that's right. So we can be involved for our own benefit, for the blessing God is ready to bestow upon a faithful servant who uses his time or her time wisely. I mean, why else be here? You've got to go into Egypt. But nevertheless, you have to remain separate while you're in those places. Now, that's the harder part. You can't share in their sin. You can't participate in the world in such a way that it defiles you, that it pollutes you, that it takes your message and your witness and neuters it. If you don't look different while you're in their world, they'll never know you are different. They'll never understand that you have a message other than the one they already know. You have to remain distinct. You ever told someone at work that you're Christian or in your school or maybe a neighbor you ever had a reason at some point to tell them that you're Christian and they're surprised to find out? You want to talk about conviction. And this isn't somebody you just met. I'm talking about someone you may have sat next to for months. Man, I have covered up my faith that much that you couldn't tell I was a Christian after months? Shame on me. Where's my salt? Where's my light? I'm in the world, but I'm of the world because they couldn't tell the difference. It doesn't mean I sinned. It just means I've covered up what Christ gave me. I've taken that lamp and put it under a blanket for a while. That's a warning sign. If you've ever had that experience, that's a warning sign. So first, we are to be in the world to fulfill the mission. So we have to be purposeful about that. Secondly, when we get in our mind that we need to be different, then we start contriving ways to be different. Notice Jesus says in John 17 that the way by which 
We will be distinct, or as he says, sanctified, which is a fancy word for set apart for holiness. He says the way will be what? By the truth. The truth is God's word. What will make us different? What will make us distinct? What will cause us to stand out in the right way? By how we reflect the word of God in our life, in our words, in our actions, our attitudes, what we hold to be true. Therefore, the chief way the church is to achieve this purposeful separation, this distinctiveness, is by holding to the truth of God's word. We can attend the very same schools with unbelievers, but while that school will hold to the lies of evolution, for example, meanwhile, we have relationships in that very same group while holding to the truth of what God says in his word concerning creation. That's distinctiveness based on God's word. That's sanctifying the truth in a way that causes them to say, man, you're, you're a little different. And they're going to say more than just that, aren't they? Jesus says, they are not of the world and the world therefore will hate them. There's two chief stumbling blocks to us fulfilling the mission of being distinct in the world. One is we are not purposeful in our attitude about the mission. We forget that's why we're here. And then the other mistake is we know why we're here and we're too afraid to fulfill it, to be distinct in the way God has called us to be. We are in the world, but we remain distinct by virtue of what we hold to be true out of God's word. When we don't use the word of God as that method of distinctiveness, we try to create our own. We try to make our own fashion of of separation. And we do it in a fleshly way. We become judgmental sourpusses who look down on our nose at all sinners and want them to see us as different by how we make them look bad or how we make ourselves look elitist or, or in some other way separated. You know the thing I'm talking about, right? That's not healthy separation. We don't live in isolated compounds. We don't dress in weird ways. We don't draw attention to ourselves through outward appearance. We don't try to make other people feel unnecessarily uncomfortable just to make a point. I see that as a misdirected effort to create distinctfulness, to create separation. But without the word of God at the center of it, what good did it do? It just made everybody uncomfortable and think we're odd. If you hold to the word of God, you won't have to make yourself look odd. You'll be odd. You'll be different in many ways, but in healthy ways. Remember Christ as your example in this. He ate with sinners. He ate with tax collectors. He's seen in the scriptures enjoying himself, enjoying his time with these people. Not excessively, not in a sinful way. Simply enjoying their life. I always think it's interesting that when I look at what scripture says about the Pharisees and their attacks to Jesus, one of the things they tried to attack him with is they said he was a drunk in the morning. Now, we know that's not true, but they could not have made that accusation and had any hope that it would stick if there wasn't like a little kernel of truth to it. And I don't mean a kernel of truth concerning drunkenness. I mean a kernel of truth concerning his gregarious, laughing, playful personality. That he could be so outgoing and enjoy himself so much that they might actually have a hope to get a lie to be believed. If he was a sourpuss, like the way they portray him in the movies, spaced out, starry-eyed, looks like he's, you know, he's on Ambien. <laughs> If that's how he really was, no one would ever say he's drunk. It wouldn't pass the test. Everyone would say, that guy, he's barely awake. No, we know that Christ had no problem associating with people who needed to know the truth, enjoying their company, but he didn't sin with them, and he left them with the truth. Make sure that the word of God is living in you 
And by its work in your heart, it overflows and creates a lifestyle and an attitude and thoughtfulness and words that bring that truth to others. And just be natural with it. You have to be in the world, not of them, not afraid of them, so that you may influence them. And finally, when you do those things, a few are going to follow. A few. I say that not because I'm pessimistic. I say that because the road is narrow, according to Scripture. So a few will follow as the Lord appoints. But don't be surprised when most of them hate you for that distinctfulness. Don't let that cause you to reevaluate your plan. If I'm making people upset, I must be doing something wrong. That's only true if you're a husband. (laughs) Joseph ensured that Pharaoh left Israel separated and distinct by appealing to the one thing he knew Pharaoh could not get over. And that's the pattern throughout Scripture. Look at John 17 again. In verse 14, Jesus said, The world will hate Jesus' disciples because they hated Jesus first. So it stands to reason, the more you look like Jesus, the more they're going to hate you. So be it. That's not the problem. We accept that. So we follow Jacob's example. We enter the world willingly while remaining distinct. Then after hearing Jacob's story, Pharaoh reacts exactly as Joseph hoped. He welcomes the family to settle in the land of Goshen. He invites them to assume care of his own herds, which I think is an interesting detail there because it probably means that after he watched all the good that came from giving Joseph control over the country's finances and agriculture, he's thinking, well, if it works the same way with the rest of his family, here, take my herds. We'll see what you do with that. And he's probably right. They probably did bless him through that. Genesis 47.7, the last verse for the day. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This is a formal moment. This is an audience before the king. And normally what you would expect is that if there was going to be any blessing taking place in this moment, you would expect it to come from Pharaoh if he chose to, to whomever is in front of him, because scripture tells us that the greater will always bless the lesser. The lesser can never bless the greater, spiritually speaking. Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 7, 7. He says, Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. It's just a general principle. So when you see Jacob blessing Pharaoh, it tells us something about their relationship. It is prophetic. It is a prophetic word from the Lord that in this moment it would be Jacob blessing Pharaoh and not the other way around. This Pharaoh was indeed blessed by the relationship he has, by the presence of Israel in his land. Jacob was sent into the land. To remain distinct for reasons that God has intended. But look at the effect it had on the land. Look at the effect it had on Pharaoh. An ungodly man, an ungodly people. They're blessed. Now, they weren't just blessed through Joseph. They're going to be blessed through Jacob's presence as well. And that is exactly what the Lord intended. The Jewish people will be a benefit to Israel. Consider that pattern when you think about what we've talked about this morning. In what God has called us to do. When we go out into the world. When we are in it, but not of it. Do you understand that there is a blessing at stake in that activity for both you and the world? We are blessed when we go out and we obey in the same way that we're blessed any time we do anything obedient. God is a God who is like the father who gives good gifts, we're told. If you give your children good gifts and you're imperfect, you can be a certain, Scripture says, that the perfect God in heaven knows how to reward us appropriately for what we do. When we are obedient to the message or to the mission of going into the world, remaining distinct, but influencing it for Christ, then you and I can be assured we will be blessed in our day of judgment for that obedience. When we don't, 
we forfeit that opportunity. Secondly, when we obey, we bless the world as Jacob was blessing Pharaoh. In the obvious way, we bring the gospel. We bring the message of truth, the message that saves. We take men and women who are on a one-way trip to hell for their own sin, and we put in their way this opportunity that God may use to call them into faith. That's a blessing to the world. That's why we exist for a time on earth. Speaking the truth of Christ, demonstrating his love, allowing others to experience the joy and the hope that is ours. We invite them, as it were, to immigrate into the heavenly kingdom with us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that you would call each and every heart in this room, first and foremost, to know you by faith in Christ, to respond to your revelation of truth with a confession of faith, and to follow with a life of obedience. And specifically, Father, from the word that you have shown us this morning, I pray that we would each have the courage to step into this world that is around us everywhere, live amongst them, not hide, not separate in the wrong ways, not be afraid to spend time with unbelievers, not be worried that in some way they will taint us. As long as we are walking in the Spirit, Father, we go under the banner of Christ and with an assurance that you will be with us. But also, Father, I pray that as we work with those opportunities, that we would remain properly distinct, that we would come out from amongst the world and not let you be defiled by how we behave. Let us have that opportunity, Father, so that we might be blessed and the world with it as you choose to. Thank you for the church, for the body, for the spirit, and for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.